You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, the Europe correspondent at the South China Morning Post. We're coming at you from Hong Kong, but we're mostly discussing events thousands of miles away this week, in Europe mainly. First up, the G7 foreign ministers got together in London this week with non-G7 members India, Australia, South Korea, ASEAN and South Africa also invited. Top of the agenda was, of course, China. Two hours of talks focused on Beijing with a hefty dollop of strongly worded statements to follow. There's that, plus China's potential new ambassador to Washington and the resuscitation of US-China trade talks to discuss with political economy editors John Carter and Joe Shin at the top of the show. I'll then speak to a very special guest all the way from Budapest. Tamás Matura is an expert in Hungarian-Chinese relations at the Corvinus University of Budapest. And boy, is that a topic we're keen to get stuck into. Hungary once again blocked the European Union's planned resolutions on Hong Kong. But there's much more to this story than meets the eye. A really good interview, that one. Another bumper episode from a stinking hot Times Square here in Hong Kong. Let's crack on. The week in China geopolitics was dominated by an event at which China was not present. The G7's foreign ministers gathered in London at the start of this week to discuss all things related to the Indo-Pacific. And of course, China was a massive part of this. A massive communique came at the end of the three-day event in which there were a solid 13 mentions of China. Uh, the communique itself was actually massive. Uh, there were six bullet points on China and it touched really on all the greatest hits, everything from human rights to economic issues to um, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, um, to free and fair trade. I'm just glancing through them now. It's it's nothing really too surprising. Uh, John Carter, Joe Shin here to discuss it with me. South China Sea also creeps in there. Um, John, you were, you were saying you, you had a look through and it was a bit of a gargantuan read. Right. Uh, 12,400 words, uh, 28 pages. It covered everything and in depth. And so... Okay, so they've they've uh, established a baseline, and so now what do they do about it? It didn't the communique and the whole uh, foreign minister summit didn't propose any specific action. Although afterwards, uh, Dominic Robb, the uh, UK foreign minister, did say that they were in, in the process of developing a rapid response mechanism to disinformation. Uh, theoretically aimed at Russia and China. Mm. But beyond that, it, it, it was just a lot of words. Um, it, they, um, the G7 called on China to participate constructively in the rule-based international order, implication being that they're not doing so now. Take that, Beijing. Yeah, indeed. Now, you have to look at this in the context of uh, overall world global uh, politics Going back to July last year, there was a UN vote at the Human Rights Council, the UN Human Rights Council, on uh, condemning or not condemning uh, the new national security law for Hong Kong. And it lost. The, that vote lost. The, the resolution by 27 nations, including mostly industrialized countries, did not include the U.S. because it's not no longer on that panel. But 53 countries supported China opposing the uh, uh, the uh, statement. Mm. Uh, a lot of countries from Africa, uh, a lot of developing countries that China supports through the Belt and Road Initiative, mm. and so 
China has support outside of the G7 framework and a lot of it because of its efforts uh, in uh, helping uh, developing countries. And so the, you have to put it in that context, the whole G7 statement and what the next step is and how they're going to proceed with the issues that they outlined in that statement. Yeah. Joshin, this was seen as a, you know, before the event, it was being touted as a way of, uh, again, um, announcing the return of the United States to the foreign policy arena, to the multilateral arena, the G7 trying to wrestle back some sort of writing of the rules of the road in the face of, uh, as, as John mentioned, China's growing influence, um, particularly among developing nations. How did this event and the um, communique that followed go down in Beijing? You know, is there an element again of sort of sticks and stones would break my bones, but words will never hurt me? <laughs> no, I think, but I think this is a, a you very a very good question because this, uh, as John said, you know, this uh, statement is quite strong in wording, but uh, quite economic in terms of uh, actions, uh, specific actions. But mentioning these uh, uh, issues and you know, speaking them loud uh, is also uh, uh, an act, and particularly lots of issues Beijing regarded as you know um, its own sovereignty issue, and this time is basically for Beijing. It seems. Like the United States uh, is uh, pulling together all its uh, alliances to form a kind of front frontier against China, and this is uh, this is something really uh, you know to be to Beijing's anger and also uh, deep worry. However, I would also like to mention the uh, possible impl implications of this kind of uh, um, uh, Western alliance. The one one perception is that you know once uh, the United States and its allies, uh, the G7 and also Australia, India, and uh, like-minded countries, are put on the same page against China. Uh, the the hope is that you know China will gradually change its behavior and to be more in line with the hopes of the Western countries. But there's also another like very likely uh, scenario is that uh, you know the. After China sees the frontier of the G7, you know, China will, on the country, will uh, double down on its uh, chosen strategy and its uh, tactics. And there will be even smaller possibilities for any compromises mm -hmm. over these mentioned issues. So, uh, and this, of course, will lead to more uh, confrontational uh, engagement between China and the, the you know, the, the Western world. And so this is uh, not very... Uh, not a very positive development for the word, I must say. Yeah, and Jiuxin, just to, to pick up on that point, I mean, it seems as though the latter is far more likely. China's, you know, in a position of, of relative strength. It's emboldened by the, the COVID-19 outbreak and so on. But it does seem to be doubling down. We saw Xi Jinping tell... Um, the, the party this week that despite all of the swirling headwinds, um, and to quote uh, the Chinese leader, China is invincible. So there's obviously sort of, uh, do, do you see that as being a response to the G7 meeting and, and this a sense of maybe that the West and its friends are, are ganging up on China? It's not directly at the G7, but certainly, yes, it's a target that this, uh, as China sees, an increasingly hostile environment that, you know, the, the, the United States is leading a coalition trying to contain China's development, despite Washington's insistence that, you know, we are not trying to contain you. We just want you to play by rules. And the China will say, "Well, it's it's not my rules; it's your rules. So why, you know, you are forcing me to to do this and that, and you know, to giving up China's sovereignty over Xinjiang or Hong Kong? So this, uh, these issues are beyond uh, you know negotiation. So this is a, a, 
um, uh, as you as you mentioned, I think China, yes, China is doubling down its children strategies. So you can also see from the Australian side, you know, yesterday the National Development and the Planning Commission has severe uh, a kind of uh, dialogue with Australia, and it's uh, yes, it's uh, the the dialogue has been quiet for a few years, but this sent a very strong signal of uh, Beijing's stance. Say, do not you know push me. This is uh, this is basically the message China is trying to telling uh, Australia, and you know Australia, you can't you know follow all. the all the way to follow the United States and to contain China, and China will head back. Mm-hmm. This is uh, this is a message, I think. Yeah, I think on the Australian one, a uh, couple of conversations I was having with people yesterday saying that uh, the, the fact that um, China has exhausted a lot of its um, weaponry regarding Australia, this forum had been dormant since 2017. Uh, it wasn't really seen as that much of a big deal, but it was certainly in response to the uh, cancellation of Belt and Road contract, contracts with um, Australian states. Um, but John, um, it shows again, I, I suppose as Joshin says, that the, the relationship is getting worse, but this will, will not be seen perhaps uh, in the same light as maybe the tariffs and, and, and duties on, on Australian goods. Yes, and, and a story we're working on at the moment is that the National Development Reform Commission is, is uh, approves investment projects. So it has a lot of power to block investments uh, where it doesn't want those investments to go, like in Australia. So this may be a warning shot, effectively, because as you say, this uh, strategic economic dialogue hadn't taken place since 2017. Uh, There was no major practical impact of cutting it off, except to formally say, uh, to formally uh, make clear what had already been taking place. We aren't talking to you. And so now we're saying we're definitely not talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the NDRC and the Chinese government have other arrows in their quiver that they can fire at Australia if they want to. Um, also today, the industry ministry is announcing a plan to cut back on steel production uh, in order, at least the top line argument is in order to cut uh, pollution emissions. But that also reduces demand for Australian iron ore. And so what does this do? Over the longer run, there are major things that China can still do to crimp Australia. And it's the, China is using Australia as an example for the rest of the developed world. We can do this to you. Uh, remember, this is all part of its strategy that the world needs the Chinese domestic market as much, if not more, than China needs the world. And we will see. We will see, indeed. Uh, One thing that we have seen is that the new U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai, um, gave a couple of interviews this week in which she intimated that there may be talks uh, afoot with uh, China's um, Vice Premier Liu He, who, of course, was the chief representative during all those rounds of trade talks with Washington, which we covered in in depth. John, is this a, just a sort of formality? You know, I guess they have to talk at some point, or has this been seen as somewhat of an olive branch, or is it just what's your sense? Uh, of it? Potentially an olive branch, uh, but uh, it's more a formality, at least initially. I mean, this would be the first um, conversation between Tai since she was nominated and confirmed by the U.S. Senate, and Liao Hu, is, who is uh, President Xi Jinping's. Uh, main economic advisor. 
And as you say, uh, Leo He led the trade negotiations. Leo He was the one who signed the trade agreement back in January of last year. Um, so they're going to talk about progress in the phase one trade deal. And the deal itself calls for meetings every six months. The last meeting was in last August. So it's overdue. So this is more procedural than anything substantive. No one expects the U.S. to say, oh, we've seen the light and we're going to reduce the trade tariffs. I mean, Ty herself has said, we're going to keep the tariffs on. Why would I give up the leverage there? Mm -hmm. We need to see more progress. They're going to look for uh, what China is going to tell them about meeting the two, $200 billion uh, purchase agreement in the trade deal. Uh, uh, China is uh, has met about 60% of that up to now. Uh, and so they have a ways to go to catch up. And will they catch up? And what happens next February when the deal, the two-year deal ends, mm -hmm. uh, does it go on or does it just expire even if China has not met all the purchase requirements? Mm -hmm. So these are things they're going to talk about. They're also going to talk about intellectual property protection, which is also in the trade deal. Um, the U.S. The USTR issued a statement last week saying recognizing progress, but not enough progress. So the U.S. is going to push in that direction. Um, what the analysts we've talked to have said, all oh, this is all very nice and good, but even if there is um, progress, quote unquote, on the trade side, it will not do much to improve the all, overall dynamic of the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, Bloomberg had a story overnight that the Biden administration is likely to continue um, its prohibition on uh, investments in certain Chinese companies related to the military. And under this program uh, that Trump initiated, um, a number of um, large Chinese companies, including the three largest telecommunication mm -hmm. companies, have been delisted from U.S. exchanges. And this is likely to continue. And this is not going to be welcomed in Beijing. Yeah. It's a sign that Biden is every bit as tough as Trump was on China. Yeah. Jiuxin, I'll ask you for your view on um, the, the status of trade talks and Catherine Tai, but I also wanted to bring you in to develop it a bit on the uh, on the Chinese side. We're potentially seeing um, a new ambassador to the United States. The, one of the names that has been widely mentioned is Chin Gang. Um, maybe yep. you could tell us a little bit, first of all, how, how are the Thai remarks and the potential of talks with Liu He? Is this something that, that you know, you, you, you're hearing on the Chinese side too? And, and then maybe tell us a little bit about this, this guy who may be moving to Washington in the near future. Uh, thank you, Fingba. I think the, the Thai comments, uh, we have to put that into the context. I mean, in the Trump administration, the trade talk is basically the central piece of the overall China-US relationship. But I think to today, uh, in the Biden administration, the differences are more about like, uh, you know, the values and e ideology, human rights, and it's more in-depth, it's more difficult to solve. So uh, even China agreed to meet, as John just mentioned, you know, um, as a protocol to uh, meet with uh, trade counterparts uh, in, the, in Washington, that really doesn't, uh, you know, has lots of strategic implications. Uh, you know, if if the if the trade talks are going to be narrowed down to, as you know, how many tons of soybean China has to buy, then this is a this become a, a really like no issue for uh, for the overall relationship. Uh, for the for the Chinese government, the priority now apparently, as as we just discussed, is more of like how to handle this kind of perceived U.S.-led 
allies trying to contain China's uh, rise and how to, uh, yesterday, you know, the President Xi Jinping had a phone call with, uh, as a United Nations guy and to say, let's put aside the ideological differences. As for Beijing, it seems uh, quite clear that, uh, you know, the values and the ideology uh, differences are become the centerpiece of the two relations, uh, the relationship between the two countries. So this is a more uh, difficult and, uh, and more in in-depth problem, uh, and it's uh, much harder than to solve than, say, uh, uh, trade imbalance issues. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and just a quick point on that. Don't forget that the US and China, uh, since Biden has come in, they've already had one meeting in Alaska, and that one didn't go particularly well. So I don't know what that says about future meetings, but worth worth keeping in mind that this is not not the first time that the, that the two countries have gotten together. Um, Joshin, on to the, uh, the, the potential for a yeah. new ambassador. What can you tell us about this gentleman? Yes, uh, we had a very good story from our colleague uh, Shi Jiantao, uh, right about uh, the background of, uh, of this guy. And also, if you put this, uh, uh, the appointment of Qing Gang as, a, as a likely the new um, Chinese ambassador in Washington in this context, because China is also at least for the Chinese top leadership, they also want to. They are seeing there's some big changes in the in the in the bilateral relationship. So you know, uh, Qing Gang's appointment, which seems on the surface is kind of break of tradition uh, by China's uh, uh, diplomatic history. You know, Qing Gang has never been an ambassador. Qing Gang has never worked uh, for. Uh, you know, in his portfolio. portfolio uh, he has never managed um, the bilateral relationship between China and the United States. Mm. So for these two issues, uh, people say he is, uh, he, is uh, he is a black horse. <laughs> well, to some extent it is, but, uh, but also he has like two uh, shining uh, qualifications that will make him the likely uh, ambassador because A, he is uh, trusted by President Xi. That's uh, without any doubt because he has been the uh, protocol department, you know, all the receptions and, uh, and accompanying Xi to all these overseas trips. So he's, uh, and, and in Hangzhou in the G20, there's a short video clip showing, showing you know, uh, she was basically chit-chatting with, uh, with, with Qing Gang about how the work style should be. Mm. So without any doubt, he has the trust of the top leader. This is the most important thing. And then secondly, Qing Gang is not a, a stranger for most of the foreign media because he is uh, quite... Uh, character in, term, uh, in, in his capacity as a Chinese uh, foreign ministry spokesperson. Uh, in fact, you know, some of the uh, uh, wolf warrior r- rhetorics or, you know, the, the, the stance of hitting back at hard questions started from Qing Gang. Mm-hmm. So Qing Gang is seeing a person who has, uh, uh, has the skills and has the capacity, has the courage or has the, has the knowledge, has the expertise and how to dealing with uh, uh, harsh questions. So this also made him a likely candidate because yeah. in, the, in, the, in the coming years, the, uh, as I just mentioned, you know, the US-China relationship are likely to become more confrontational. So there will be lots of uh, uh, events for the ambassador to, you know, to strongly deliver China's message. Mm-hmm. And so this, uh, in, in terms of this, I think Qinggang will be a, a you know, very competitive candidate for this position. And as a replacement, you're, you're saying that Qing Gang is, is maybe the architect or at least semi-involved in the origins of this wolf warrior diplomacy. Does this represent a changing of the guard? Like, is this, um, you know, really formalizing this era of diplomacy in China? Uh, yes, to some extent, yes, because Chui Tenkai is, uh, you know, widely regarded as like 
one of the older generation of Chinese diplomats, you know, brought up in the Deng Xiaoping area, in the Brumning, the Jiang Zemin area. And, you know, uh, his prime time should be during the Hu Jintao era. And certainly, uh, compared to that time, China's dip diplomacy has become more, uh, you know, some say assertive, or in China's own words, is more confident. So I think Qinggang is more, of course, represent more of the like the new style of Chinese diplomacy compared to Sui Ting. Yeah. Moving really quickly on to our last topic, I wanted to touch on the um, the news this week about uh, vaccine waivers uh, for intellectual property. Um, Catherine Tao, who we've already talked about, a uh, bit of a bombshell announcement saying that the US would propose uh, or at least back a move to uh, postpone or suspend uh, uh, IP for, um, for vaccines in a way, I guess, to roll them out around the world. John, how has this been seen? Um, does this have legs and does it have any impact on, on, on China or are they involved? Uh, it has legs in, in a PR sense, yes. I mean, it, it's in its, um, uh, because it makes America look good, it's, it uh, will help, in theory, will help uh, the vaccine get to developing countries faster. But in practical terms, uh, it is just a step in a long process. Um, I mean, the vaccine waiver was originally proposed by India and South Africa, who happened to be at the uh, foreign ministers' meeting this week, and is supported by more than 100 countries. Um, but now it goes to the World Trade Organization, which has to approve it. And as you can tell uh, us, uh, it needs to be approved more or less by consensus. And there are still a lot of uh, countries that oppose it, the U.K., Canada still and the EU. Um, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, came out overnight and opposed it, the waiver. And so it's not at all clear that the WTO will approve this waiver. And in practical terms, even if the waiver isn't in approved, uh, it's it just opens up the ability of, of certain countries to uh, uh, develop their own vaccines without worrying about impinging on others' patents. Mm -hmm. But the ability and the development of vaccines is very complex and takes a lot of time. And uh, a lot of the big pharma companies have said, look, we could have supplied a lot more vaccines to the developing world if not for trade barriers that already exist. Uh, and so this, the waiver isn't the problem. The problem is getting production to the places where it's needed. Mm. So... Yes, the waiver is a step in the right direction, but it's only one step, and it remains clear if it will be sufficient to uh, get the ball rolling faster. Yeah. Is there any chatter about it in, in China, Joshin? Has there been any comment or generally not, not on the radar? I'm not paying particular, particular attention to that, but, but the only thing I realize is that all the vaccine-related stocks has plunged yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's uh, well, that's one one barometer of how the news is being yeah, greeted. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's not good for vaccine stock prices. Although when Miracle opposed it, the vaccine stock prices in the, popped in, up. Indices are, are back up this morning. Yeah. Great stuff, guys. That's been really interesting. John Carter, Joe Shin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world. The weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. 
It's been a busy week for EU-China relations and Hungary has been right at the centre of it all. I am joined on the line by Tamás Matura, who is a China expert at the Corvinus University of Budapest, to talk about Hungary's role in all these events. Tamás, we, we saw this week again for the second month in a row um, the Hungarian government in uh, the representation in Brussels blocking EU's conclusions on Hong Kong. Now, these are um, conclusions which were supposed to be adopted at the Foreign Affairs Council, uh, which would have seen the EU criticise Beijing's crackdown on Hong Kong, um, the national security law, the electoral reform. It would have seen some measures introduced around uh, EU member states' extradition treaties with mainland China, around uh, the freedom for Hong Kong people to move and work in Europe. Um, Nothing too biting, but nonetheless, conclusions that the EU hoped to pass. Uh, What is behind Budapest's continual um, obstinance here, uh, Tamash? Why why are they blocking the EU's efforts to, to do something on Hong Kong? Okay, I think to understand uh, Hungary's foreign policy and China policy, first of all, we have to understand the bigger picture, and that is uh, the so-called Peacock's Dance. The Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, mentioned that several times that his foreign policy can be compared to a Peacock's Dance. What does it mean in reality? It means that this is not only about China. Uh, This is about Russia, Turkey, the United States, the EU, and Germany in particular. And uh, this is an opportunistic foreign policy followed by the prime minister. It technically means that he always tries to please every major player in the Central and Eastern European uh, region. So he takes one step to the right, one step to the back, and tries to rattle his beautiful feathers uh, to please everyone, including Russia, Turkey, and all of these major countries. I know it sounds funny, but actually it is the prime minister himself who described his, uh, his, his foreign policy strategy, or I would rather say it's it's, it's a tactics as a peacock's dance. So whatever he does about China, it is in the context of this wider picture or bigger picture. So when it comes to China itself, I think we have to pay attention to some very important details. And that is in the past decade, the Hungarian government has offered a lot of um, gestures and symbolic, uh, you know, gifts, if I may say so, to the Chinese. But there is a very important detail over here, that whatever the Hungarian government has uh, presented to China as a gift uh, has always been political by nature. Uh, including Hong Kong issue, including the South China Sea issue when the Hungarian uh, government kind of uh, supported the Chinese understanding, uh, when it comes to blocking joint EU statement, when it comes to not criticizing the Belt and Road Initiative like many other European countries did or all other European countries did. Um, So it means that all of these gifts are political by nature and Meanwhile, when it comes to issues where economic uh, considerations are at stake, especially economic considerations important to Germany, in those cases, the Hungarian government always sticks to the European stance or the German understanding of that particular issue. So this is a a double game, if I may say so. Uh, On the one hand, uh, pleasing the Chinese uh, when it comes to these political uh, clashes between the West and China, and at the very same time, sticking to German 
economic and industrial interest because in reality uh, the Hungarian government is not dependent on China it is heavily dependent on Germany mm-hmm. but given the past decades international circumstances it seems that this kind of um, opportunistic foreign policy this kind of tactics may pay off on the short in the short and medium term i'm not sure about the long term because the world is heading towards uh, uh, an international environment where sooner or later a country may have to choose whether it sticks to western values or not yeah it's interesting because you know obviously being out here in, in hong kong covering um, chinese affairs we 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 talk a lot about hungary um, in the context of china and perhaps uh, it's lost um, in the wider coverage that Berlin is is more important than than Beijing. If Berlin was harder line on China, um, obviously great trade relations, huge investment, and huge commercial ties between Germany and China. But uh, and 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 German the German leadership is obviously more reluctant than other parts of Europe to be very critical of, of China. Do you think if that situation was to change, we've got a German election this year, then we may see this peacock dance have to take a new direction? Um, absolutely, but a lot depends on uh, what kind of direction Germany may choose following its elections, because now a lot of people expect that any kind of new German government, especially one with a strong presence of the Green Party, may change uh, the attitude uh, of Angela Merkel's Germany towards a new direction and a more confrontative direction when it comes to China. However, I'm a little bit you know, doubtful because we, we know that we have the experience that whenever a party is in opposition, it is easy to be critical. It is easy to promise in a confrontative measures. However, when you get into the government, then you have to face the reality. You have to face that China is super important. And in a matter of days, um, important German industrial interest groups will knock on your door and will tell you that, hey, yeah, we do understand the importance of human rights and all these value-based issues, but we still want to keep selling our cars and other stuff in China. So please be considerate about uh, dealing with China. So frankly speaking, I do not expect uh, a a huge turnaround in German foreign policy vis-a-vis China. So in that regard, what may trigger a change in Budapest foreign policy is either the the Hungarian elections next year, 2022, May 2022. And even though um, it is highly probable the current government can keep its seat, but that is also sure that in 12 years, this is the first time when uh, a defeat is on the table, so we cannot exclude that. And a new Hungarian government would definitely follow a very different China policy, because I think that's an important detail, that the Hungarian pro-China policy is a personal policy of the prime minister and some important people in the governing party. There is no public support in Hungary behind that. There is no media support behind that. And even economic considerations do not really play into this whole game, because the real economic importance of China to the Hungarian economy is not that high. So in case of um, an opposition party or parties or coalition comes into the picture next year, I expect a major change in the Hungarian foreign policy, generally speaking, and in particular towards China. And the other major factor that may play into this game is, of course, the Biden administration. 
last year I had the pleasure to um, uh, attend the conference uh, where Central European and, and very high-profile American-China experts exchanged some views, and and an American colleague over there explicitly mentioned Hungary as a country what may feel the increase of pressure coming to Washington, because as they phrased it, uh, the Biden administration, which intends to forge a global alliance of like-minded nations and democracies, can it afford itself to have uh, a country with democratic backsliding within its own inner circle, a NATO and EU member state? So I think this process may have already started in the background behind the curtains. There have been some gossips that a few months ago, um, um, Foreign Secretary Blinken and the Hungarian Foreign Secretary Mr. Siartu had a conversation at, at a, a major international event. And over there, Mr. Blinken sent a very strong message uh, to the Hungarian side that America can live with uh, strong Hungarian-Chinese economic relations. They don't think that it, 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 has to make, it has to cause any concern, but the strong political relationship between Budapest and Beijing, this is something America cannot really stand. Mm -hmm. And in the past few weeks, we have seen some other uh, important uh, and strong signals coming from, from Washington to Budapest. So far, it seems that the Hungarian government is either ignorant or reluctant to, to react positively to these messages. Uh, last week, um, uh, the Chinese ambassador in Budapest had the opportunity to publish two op-eds in two major Hungarian governmental mouthpieces, and, and the next Next day, Viktor Orban announced his intention to travel to Beijing soon. So, so far, it seems that this peacock dance is still going on um, at least till next May. Yeah, indeed. Can I ask you uh, just another sort of detail on the the um, Hungary's policy or Hungary's Hungary's position as one of the EU's twenty seven member states? Um, it's interesting that the you know. Last or in March, the European Union issued its first sanctions on China since Tiananmen Square in 1989. Um, these were sanctions on some relatively mid-rank officials over the alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Of course, these, in the same way as the resolutions on Hong Kong, they have to have the support of all the member states. Um, the, the day that the sanctions were announced, the Hungarian foreign minister was um, calling them a waste of time uh, and calling them pointless. Um, but clearly, Hungary had signed up for this. And I, I'm wondering, how can we read this dynamic where one month Hungary is signing up for the sanctions on China, the next month it's blocking the resolutions on Hong Kong? Is this basically, um, you know, can we read into this that maybe Germany wasn't exerting too much pressure on on Hungary re-Hong Kong, but perhaps re regarding sanctions, they had to come into line or was it because the United States was involved? What, where do you explain that? How do you explain that discrepancy? Well, I can only speculate, of course, because I'm not a member of the Hungarian government, obviously, but I, I would speculate that maybe uh, when it came to the sanctions, it wasn't uh, the EU itself alone, but maybe even the United States of America expressed its, well, strong desires to, 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 to that, that all countries of the EU should get in line and should get on board. Uh, I think it pretty much fits into this Peacock's Dance model that, you know, one step ahead or one step back, two steps ahead. So this kind of dance. And, and that was the moment when Hungary had to take the right direction. And of course, it tried to 
um, um, make its decision to um, support the sanctions a little bit less sharp by, by, by criticizing it right after it. So in a matter of minutes, it's not you know, the, the most elegant thing to do, I believe, at least in, according to diplomatic standards. Well, actually, it resonated pretty well in, in Beijing. And uh, in the subsequent days, I remember that the Chinese published a lot of uh, um, uh, news and articles and commentaries in which they did explicitly mention Hungary as you know one of the one of the last countries what really understands how important China is and the true friend of China the Hungarian government etc etc furthermore uh, we have seen certain uh, occasions in the past, in the past few years, when um, the block or the veto of one single member state was, of course, embarrassing to the EU, but the EU also found, found a way to circumvent it. And, for example, they uh, announced certain condemnation of China, saying that the following 27 or 26 member states of the EU all agreed upon it. And, of course, they did not mention that Hungary was not on board. Mm -hmm. So the EU can still send a very strong message. And if the U.S. also put some pressure on Hungary, maybe that was the reason Hungary also signed up uh, uh, to a certain extent to, to the sanctions. And now it seems that the Hungarian government believes it's, uh, it's due time to take a step back, not supporting uh, further uh, comments on Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you about the view of the uh, EU-China investment deal in, in Hungary? Um, I suppose the Hungarian government's fairly supportive of this. Um, it looks like it's dead in the water in terms of getting ratified by the European Parliament. The sanctions certainly didn't help. Uh, we had a bit of a confusing situation earlier this week where the EU Trade Commissioner um, was, I think, uh, he gave an interview to the AFP, which wasn't necessarily very clear what he was saying in the AFP, perhaps didn't use the best headline. But regardless, it seems to be a bit of a confusing situation. But generally, how is it viewed in, in Hungary differently to the rest of Europe? Do you think that there's support for it? Do you think that the deal is dead? Um, I believe for most of the Central and Eastern European countries, uh, the investment deal wasn't, you know, really high on the agenda because the Central European countries like Hungary, we are part of the global supply chain and the way we are attached to the global supply chain is through Germany. That's probably one of the reasons Hungary always uh, follows the German lead when it comes to economic questions and economic matters. So indeed, the Hungarian government and most of the Central European countries as far as I remember, uh, did support uh, the, the treaty or the agreement to be signed with the Chinese. Now it's a major question with, uh, well, how to proceed with, uh, with the ratification of, um, of um, uh, the agreement. I believe that many members of the European Parliament, uh, delegated by Hungarian opposition parties, now, uh, now, now will not support uh, the, the signature of the agreement, especially because, and that was a major surprise even to me, in the past year, uh, Hungary, in Hungary, China has finally become a major political topic. Uh, in the past 10 years, Actually, China wasn't really important as a topic in Hungary because most of the, actually all the major parliamentary parties technically supported strong relationship to China because the very strong relationship between the two sides wasn't 
uh, initiated by the current government. It started back in 2003 when the socialist, socialist prime minister of the time visited Beijing and, um, and, and the socialist and left-wing parties started this whole procedure to, to, to start a kind of um, rapprochement towards China. And it is only in the past six months or maximum one year when um, the Chinese topic became a major topic in Hungary. And ironically speaking, this is partially because of the mistakes the Chinese side committed. For example, they sent some uh, quite harsh letters to opposition members of the Hungarian parliament, what actually provided a very good opportunity to these uh, opposition people to you know, whip up a little bit this topic. And because of the Belgrade-Budapest railway line, because of the Arrival, the potential arrival of Fudan University to Budapest, and all of these somewhat shady issues turned the topic of China into a major political debate in Hungary. Tamás Matura, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this week's China Geopolitics podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham at the South China Morning Post. It's been a really busy week. The news cycle is relentless, but we're trying our best to keep pace with it. We'll be back next week with more of the same. Tune in then and stay safe. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture and society. 